0: share some background information. I want to share uh, a little outline of the book as well. Um, So let's first uh, look at the city of Corinth from the perspective of what it was like. No, we did that purposely because we knew you guys stayed up too late and you needed to wake up. So now Colson's not going to do it again, I hope. But uh, you need another one? Everybody awake now? Okay, good. So let's look at a little background information of the city uh, so that we can kind of understand where Paul was and what these Corinthian believers had to uh, be up against. And so Corinth was very wealthy. It was a very important city in the Roman Empire, and one of the biggest reasons why is because of its location. Now, during that time, you know, if you wanted to move merchandise, you know, nowadays we use 18-wheelers. Back then, the main uh, mode of transportation to move merchandise and cargo was on ships, Uh, and so if you lived in a port city, you were much more significant because the ships and all the cargo had to come to you. Now, um, Corinth was in a seaport city, but they were unique uh, more than other seaport cities. If you can notice there from the map, the thing that is unique is that narrow connecting strip of land that the arrow is pointing to at the bottom of Greece. And it had a harbor on each side of this. And the reason this was so significant is because they did this ingenious thing. They built all these rollers over that little narrow portion of land, and they could take a ship out of the harbor, put it on the rollers, roll it across the land. And put it in the harbor on the other side. And so this saved people from sailing another 250 miles down the southern part of Greece. And so now, you know, it's kind of like the Panama Canal. You know, they have this place now where they can come and they can just, you know, make it so much quicker. So this was something that enabled a lot of people to come to Corinth. It was a huge destination uh, for bringing all your goods. And because of that, you know, it had a large population, about 750,000 people, which was quite large back in that day. But it also was very diverse. Uh, a very diverse culture, but with that diversity brought a lot of different beliefs, a lot of pagan idolatry, a lot of sin. Uh, they had a huge temple there in Corinth, uh, the temple to uh, Epaphrodite, the the goddess of love, and here's a picture of the ruins of the temple there in Corinth today, and unfortunately, uh, this temple, uh, it had a thousand prostitutes, and every single night, the prostitutes would go out into Corinth, and they would, you know, do their thing in order to ultimately worship uh, this goddess of love. Now, here is an artist's rendition of what Corinth would have looked like back then, and as you can see, the temple would have been right in the heart of the city, and so this, you know, this, this sexual sin, was very prevalent uh, in the city of Corinth. Corinth was so sexually immoral that the Greek author uh, Aristophanes coined a new Greek verb to Corinthianize, uh, meaning to participate in immoral sexual activity. And throughout the Roman Empire, if you were immoral, you would be known as a Corinthian. And a Corinthian companion was a prostitute. Uh, And so because of what transpired there, Corinth throughout the Roman Empire was known in this way. Today we might say what stays in Corinth, or actually uh, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, kind of the the Vegas motto. But uh, so Corinth was very pagan. It was very godless. It was very immoral. And this is what Paul came to when he came there to plant the church. But more importantly, this is what the Corinthian. Believers had to live amongst. Uh, and that's going to be very important as we look at this letter and all the problems that they have because there's a lot of immorality surrounding them. Now, in Acts chapter 18, it wasn't that long ago that we were in the book of Acts and, and looking at 18. And so uh, maybe you remember what transpired there, but Paul had left Athens. And he went to Corinth and he comes there and he starts making tents and he meets Priscilla and Aquila and they're also tent makers and he goes like he normally does to the synagogue and he starts preaching the gospel and as often happened, they reject him and he leaves and he starts preaching the gospel in the house of a man named Justice. But we're told that soon after that, the ruler of the synagogue there in um, Corinth, the man by the name of Crispus, He believes in Jesus, and his household believes in Jesus, and so the start of the church happens with him, his household, and other people who have accepted Christ, and so Paul started the church there in Corinth. It was on his second missionary journey, and the date was probably around 51 AD. Now in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, we're told Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, in Paul's missionary journeys, this is the second longest destination or time that he was at a place. Uh, Ephesus, he was there for three years, but a year and a half is the second longest he was in a place. Uh, And he goes to Ephesus after this, um, and as he's in Ephesus, he writes a letter to the Corinthian believers, but it was actually on his third missionary journey. And so most scholars believe that he wrote this letter while in Ephesus sometime between 55 and 57 AD. And so he goes there in 51 AD, writes it between 55 and 57. And the thing that's important to note is that when they receive this letter from Paul, the church is only four to six years old. So that means the majority of believers there are only been saved for four to six years at the maximum. So there's a lot of immature believers. And the reason that's important to note is when you have immaturity in your relationship with the Lord and you're surrounded by such immorality where you're at, Oftentimes the result is sin in the church, uh, and that is something that we're going to see here in Corinth. They're surrounded by a lot of, you know, sin, and they brought big problems there to uh, the Corinthian church. And, and it's really these problems that brings Paul to write this letter. We're told there's basically two reasons that he writes this letter. It's in response to two different things. First, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, For it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. And then he shares what they, you know, shared with him. So there's this uh, group of believers there in Chloe's household, uh, or a family, and they contact Paul and they share some things of, hey, you know, we got some problems here in our church and we want to let you know about it. And so the first portion of this letter is in response to what Chloe's household told Paul about some of the issues that were taking place there in Corinth. The second thing Paul tells us in chapter 7 verse 1 is now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And then he shares about that. And so the second part of the letter is response to what they wrote to Paul. They asked him certain questions about certain things that they were dealing with and struggling with. And so Paul responds to them by telling them how they should live uh, within the different questions that they asked of him. Now, so the reason this letter was written was in response to concerns about the Corinthian church and questions from the Corinthian church. And since this is a response to concerns and questions from the Corinthian church, if you read through other letters that Paul wrote, you know, it's very systematic, it's very organized, it's, you know, it has a lot of different themes. This one doesn't kind of fit that same pattern because basically he's just answering questions that were asked of him and dealing with different issues that these Corinthians struggled with. And so, here's a simple outline of what we're going to be looking at as we discuss the things in this book. Paul starts off with an introduction, as he always does, which we'll look at this morning. And then he goes into 11 different issues that this church was struggling with, that they were dealing with. And so in the outline here, we have it start with the introduction, we have it end with the conclusion. But in the middle, you have these 11 different issues, and I put a title that kind of you know sums up the main issue that Paul is addressing in those verses. Uh, and with each one of the problems... Paul addresses, here's the problem, but more importantly, here's the solution. Here's what's going on, and here's what you need to do to fix it. So it's a very practical book. And the 11 things that Paul deals with, as you can see, are divisions in the church, which is actually the biggest issue because he spends four chapters focusing on this issue of division in the church. He deals with church discipline, lawsuits among believers, sexual immorality, uh, relationships of all different kinds, Christian liberty, headship, communion, spiritual gift, uh, the resurrection, and giving. And this is a great book. You know, I think of all the New Testament books today, you know, one, I think the, the Corinthian church oftentimes reflects the, the church in America most today. But also, you know, it's something that we struggle with. As we look at these different things, these are issues that we as a church deal with. And so Paul is going to be sharing The problems and the solutions, and I think it's going to be very good and practical uh, for us, and I hope as we go through this that you will learn a lot, but more importantly, that you will put these things into practice, and if these are problems that you face, uh, that we would put these solutions uh, into our lives. And so this morning we're going to start with what Paul starts with, this introduction that he gives, and in verse 1 he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother. So Paul starts his letter as he does with all of his letters. He gives a greeting, but more importantly, he also shares, hey, this is who it's from, it's from me. And he always usually shares a few things about himself after he introduces himself. But here in this letter, he only shares one specific thing, but it's a very important thing in light of what he's about to write. He tells them that he's called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. So there are two important things that Paul wants his readers to understand. First, he's an apostle. and we think of the apostles, we think of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose that ultimately became apostles, and then one you know, wasn't anymore, Judas the betrayer. But those are the apostles that you know, when he speaks of this apostolic role. And second, more importantly, it was Jesus who called him to be the apostle, and it was through the will of God that that happened. So Paul wants to make something very clear. Yes, I'm an apostle, but I didn't make myself that. I didn't give myself that authority. I didn't give myself that title. It was something that Jesus gave to me, something that I was given by the Lord. And actually, at the end of this letter, in chapter 15, he clarifies kind of this role of apostleship that he has that I think is important for us to note. He says in chapter 15, verses 7 through 10, And that Jesus was seen by James, then all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. This chapter is all about the resurrection, and Paul's talking about the different people that saw Jesus after He rose from the dead. And one group were the apostles, these eleven that you know were given that role. But then he says, "You know what? I also saw Jesus after He rose from the dead," uh, and he wants to clarify that. And he's speaking about when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, that time when he gets saved and Jesus appears to him, and that was when Paul had this encounter with the risen Christ. But notice he's says, he's an apostle born out of due time, meaning that his apostleship came later than the others. And he also says, I don't feel worthy to be an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But you know what? By God's grace, he made me this. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it, it's God's grace, he's given me this authority, he's given me this role, and he wants these believers to understand that he has this authority, because what he's about to write is pretty in your face. What he's about to write is dealing with some serious sin and how they need to change, and so a lot of people might say, well, you know what, Paul, that's just your opinion, or you know what, Paul, who are you to write that to me, or Paul, you know, who do you think you are to tell me this or that, and Paul wants them to understand, I have authority from God to address these things. And I think it's important for us as we look at the word of God to remember that, you know, this isn't just a bunch of nice letters or interesting stories written by different men. This is the word of God. He's inspired it. He inspired these individuals to share these things. And so as we go through these problems, I'm sure that maybe one of them is going to hit you. And sometimes we think, well, you know, well, that's, that, that's just Paul's opinion or, or that's just this person's thoughts. No, this is God's word. This is God's opinion. This is what God says about us and what we need to do in response to the sin in our life. And so Paul wants them to understand that. And I think we need to understand that as well. So after Paul introduces himself and shares this great thing that he is an apostle by the will of God, he throws out this little thing. He says, and Sothenes, our brother. Well, he often tells people that are, you know, these guys are ministering with me, but this is an interesting person that he throws out there. One, he's a Corinthian, but if you remember, as we just noted in Acts chapter 18, Paul goes and the ruler of the synagogue gets saved. His name's Crispus. Well, guess what? Crispus lost his job. You can't believe in Jesus and be the ruler of the synagogue. And so they remove him as the ruler of the synagogue. And you know who takes his place there in Acts chapter 18? A man by the name of Sothenes. Now, Sothenes thinks, you know what? I'm going to show how much I'm not like Crispus. And I'm going to take Paul and I'm going to bring him to trial in order to have something bad happen to me so that, you know, hey, the people in the synagogue are really going to like me. So Sothenes does that. He brings them before the court there, uh, Paul before the court there in Corinth. And they look at what the accusations are and they're like, man, this is all about your guys' beliefs and religious stuff. We don't want anything to do with it. Paul, you can leave. Well, they're not pleased by that. And so they take Sothenes, who lost the case here, and they beat him. And that's the last thing we see of him in Acts chapter 18. But now he comes up again. And notice now, he's not trying to take Paul to trial He's a believer in Christ who's ministering with Paul. And I think that's an interesting thing to note because sometimes, you know, we're out there and we're sharing the gospel and we're ministering and we have people like Sothenes who are against us, who want to try to destroy us. But remember that, you know what, just be patient and just be diligent to keep ministering and reaching out to people because maybe like this man, he will at one point in time, not only accept Christ, but join you in ministering with or for Christ. And so it's kind of an interesting thing here that this Corinthian, who was once very against Christ, is now ministering with Paul. So now Paul is going to share who this letter is to, verse 2 and 3. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. So here Paul tells us who the letter is to. And notice what he says. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And I want you to note something that's very important here. Notice Paul is not addressing the church of Corinth. He's addressing the church of God, which is in Corinth. And that's a very important distinction to make that we often miss. It's a good reminder that the church belongs to. To God. It doesn't belong to the individuals there. It doesn't belong to the pastor. You know, we are the church of God in Pasadena. Because I'm the pastor, people watch and say to me, How is your church doing? And I understand what they mean by that, but it's not my church. It's Jesus' church. He's the head of the church. I'm just pastoring it. And there are men who are in my role who think, no, it is my church. And they try to take ownership of that. But it is no man's church. It is Christ's church. And I like the reality here. If it's the church of God, it just meets in Corinth. And we need to understand that and be reminded of that. But I think Paul also tells us this. To understand the contrast between the two statements because you have the church of God which is something very good but it's in a sinful city like Corinth which is something bad and this you know is something that we need to understand because it helps us get what's going on here in first Corinthians because you have the church of God in a sinful place and because of that The church has allowed the sin of the city to influence them and bring lots of problems to their life. You see, the main problem these believers in Corinth had was the city was influencing the church instead of the church influencing the city, which is how it's supposed to be. We as a church are supposed to influence the city for God, but instead the city was influencing the church to sin. And I think this is one of the biggest problems the church world has today, especially here America. For many churches, the culture is influencing the church far more than the church is influencing the culture. And that's a big problem. G. Campbell Morgan, a great pastor and commentator, he says this, The measure of failure on the part of the church is measure in which she allows herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age. We are sometimes told today what the church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of the age. A thousand times no. What the church supremely needs is to correct the spirit of the age. You know, one of the problems many churches have is they, they, they want to be like the world in order to reach the world. Or as G. Campbell Morgan says, many churches are trying to catch the spirits of the age. You know, we have in the church world today something that's called the seeker-sensitive movement, which basically says, you know, what does the world want? in a church. What does it want? And we will become that. Whatever the world wants, that's what ultimately we're going to do. Well, the world doesn't like to hear about sin. They definitely don't like to hear about the fact that they're going to hell. So we won't ever discuss that. You know, the world doesn't like to be taught the Bible. They like to be entertained. And so we won't teach them the Bible. We will just entertain them. Now, the main push behind the seeker-sensitive movement is the thought that if we become like the world, then we'll get more people from the world coming to our church. Now, there is truth to that statement. If you become more like the world, you will get more worldly people coming to your church. But the problem is, it's now coming to an unbiblical church who's not doing what it's supposed to do. And the real problem is you're no longer preaching the gospel. You're no longer teaching the word of God. So these worldly people are coming, but they're not getting saved and they're not growing because you've abandoned the reason why the church exists and you're washing it away with this desire to be like the world. So I agree with G. Campbell Morgan when he says, the church needs to catch the spirit of this world a thousand times. No. When we seek to be like the world to reach the world, What happens is we don't reach the world. Instead, we become like it. That was the issue with Corinth. They were trying to be like the world, and that's exactly what happened. They just became like the world, but they didn't reach it. We become full of sin and compromise. You know, the Bible does not tell us to be like the world, but to be a light to the world. Very different. We're to be a light in the darkness, not to become like the world around us. A light that reveals their need for a savior. A light that shows them Jesus is the one who died on the cross for their sin. So we are a church that is in the world, but we need to make a choice to not be of the world. Instead, to be a light to the world. So Paul starts off telling us he's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then he tells us two things about the Corinthian believers that are important to note. First, they're sanctified in Jesus. And second, they are saints. Now, the words sanctified and saints basically mean the same thing. To be sanctified is to be set apart from the world to God. And to be a saint is to be set apart for God. Now, the big thing that's important to note is that both of these things happen because we accept Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And I think something even important to note as well with the New King James Version here, it says called to be saints, but the words to be were inserted by the translators. The original Greek just means called saints. And I point that out because it's important to note that these believers, when they accepted Christ, right then, presently, were called saints. Because the mindset that we have, especially within the Catholic Church, is, oh, once you do enough good works, then you can be saints in the future, instead of the reality that I am a saint right now because I place my belief in Jesus Christ. I am called a saint the day I accept Christ. I'm not a saint because I do all these good works and then somehow in the future obtain sainthood. The Corinthian believers are saints. They're set apart for God for one reason and one reason alone, their belief in Jesus Christ and what he did to make that possible for them. But Paul goes on to say, you know what? Hey, this is not just for you. This is for every believer, to all who are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's laying the foundation for an important issue that we're going to be looking at in the next four chapters, this issue of division. And he's trying to help them see we all have this sainthood. We're all the same. We all have the same Christ. We have this thing to unify ourselves over. And he's kind of building this, and he's going to spend a lot of time dealing with that, which we'll be looking at uh, in the next several weeks. But this unity, this common lordship of Christ that each of us have. So, the saint, it's not exclusive to them. All who believe in Jesus are saints as well. Paul goes on to say, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. This is a typical greeting that Paul uses, one that's drawn both from the Greek culture and the Jewish culture. Uh, grace was something that the Greeks would use in, in you know, greeting one another. Uh, peace or salom, was something that the, the Jews would use. And, and Paul brings this, but you notice that he always puts grace before peace because the reality is the grace of God is necessary for peace to be in your life. It can't go the other way around. You can't have peace without grace. Uh, and that's something just, just uh, important for us to remember of what grace brings. And now Paul is going to share about some of the amazing gifts, some of the amazing things that the Corinthians and us have received because of God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Notice what he tells us, verses 4 through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. That you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end. That you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice here that Paul reveals that he is thankful for something. And what he's thankful for is the grace of God that was given to the church there in Corinth. And he shares with them specific ways in which God's grace was given in different gifts to them. Everything that God gives us is by his grace. Meaning we don't deserve it, we haven't earned it, there's nothing we could do to earn it. And all the things that Paul shares here is just, hey, God gave this to you because he's gracious. Because of what Christ has done for you, it's not something that you earned. Notice the first thing he tells them, he says, You were enriched in everything by Jesus in all utterance, and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. One of the gracious gifts that God has given to the Corinthian church, he's given to us, is that he has enriched them in everything by Jesus. You know, being a believer in Jesus Christ enriches your life in every way. It enriches your relationships, it enriches your pursuits, your goals, it enriches your job, it enriches everything. Having a relationship with Jesus is the most enriching thing in your life. And the world tries to tell us something that's opposite of that. No, 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 this will enrich your life more. Or this will enrich your life more. Or pursue this because it's better than Jesus. And pursue that because it'll give you more than Jesus can. And it's a lie. Jesus is the one who truly enriches us. You know, these Corinthian believers, they were enriched in every way by Jesus. But unfortunately, for many of them, either they didn't grasp it, or they didn't think it was enough. And so they started to look to the world for enrichment. Oh, we have this in Jesus. Oh, that's nice and good. But you know what? Oh, look what the world gives. Oh, look what the world's offering. And they started to go for the enrichment that the world was uh, pushing forward towards them and abandoning the enrichment that they already have in Christ. And I think, sadly, this is something that happens to a lot of us as Christians. We don't grasp this truth that all we need is in Jesus, that we are complete in him. All the enrichment that we need in life comes through our relationship with him. We don't need what this world has to offer. Now maybe our flesh wants what this world has to offer, but we need to believe the truth that we don't need that. And not only do we not need that, it does not satisfy. It does not give you what you think it will. Only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus gives you what you truly need. You know, one of my favorite worship songs is give me Jesus. I like Fernando Ortega's version of that. But there's a, there's a line in the song that says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Yeah, And I think that should be our heart. You know what, world? You can have everything that you have to offer. Keep it. All I want is Jesus. Because I recognize what Jesus offers is better than anything you can give me. These believers in Corinth and us as well have been enriched in everything by Jesus. What a wonderful, gracious gift. Another blessing these believers were given by God is they came short in no gift. Think about that. The Corinthians were greatly gifted by God. God gave them all sorts of wonderful gifts. But unfortunately, they didn't really use a lot of the gifts. And we're going to see the longest section in scripture on spiritual gifts and how they should be used, because they were given lots of great gifts by God but yet they either didn't use them or they didn't use them properly. Something that we need to understand is that God gives us gifts ultimately so that we would use them for his glory. So often Christians have gifts and they don't do anything with them. That's not why God gave you a gift. He didn't give you a gift so that you would sit on it and do nothing with it. He says, here, here's a gift. Now use it. Use it for my glory. And you'll find that if you're using your gifts for God, often he'll give you more. Because it's like, oh great, here's someone who actually does something with the gifts that I give to them. When we don't use our gifts to glorify God, ultimately we're just wasting them. Charles Spurgeon said this, Should it not show us that gifts are nothing unless they are laid on the altar of God? That it's nothing to have the gift of oratory. That it's nothing to have the power of eloquence. That it's nothing to have learning. That it's nothing to have influence unless they all be dedicated to God and consecrated to his service. God gave us gifts to use them, not to waste them. I think a good question for all of us to ask ourselves is, what am I doing with the gifts that God has given me? Think first about what gifts you have been given and then ask yourself, what am I doing with that? How am I using that? How am I serving God with those things? And if the answer is I'm not really doing anything with them, then you're wasting them. God didn't give it to you for you not to do anything with it. He did it. He gave it to you so that you would use it ultimately for His glory, not yours. Another thing these believers were also blessed with is a wonderful gift. Verse 8 says that Jesus Christ would confirm them to the end that they may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is the one that probably brings the most encouragement to me, especially as you look through this book and you see all the problems of sin that these believers in Corinth have. And notice what Paul says in confidence. He says, I am confident that God will take care of your problem and he will confirm you to the end so that you will stand blameless before him. I mean, what a wonderful gift. With all the screwed up things in our lives, all the sin that we have, that we one day will stand blameless before God because of Jesus Christ. He is the one who's faithful and capable of doing that. And that's something that we need to have confidence in, that what he began in you, he's going to complete until the day he comes to get us, or the day we die, he's going to complete it. He's the one who's faithful. He's the one who's going to present you blameless. It's because of what he's done that makes that feasible, that makes that possible. This is something that I am very encouraged when I look at my own sin. I'm sure that the Corinthian believers, as they read this and they looked at their issues, were very encouraged by that the Lord was going to be faithful to do this for them. But it's only through Jesus that we can stand before the Lord blameless. Nothing that you do or don't do will ever get you to that place to stand before God blameless. We can't do it on our own, not our works or not things that we avoid. The only way to stand before the Lord blameless is accepting what Christ has done. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, our sin, it stains us. And the only way to be clean, the only way to be cleansed from the sin in our life is through Jesus' shed blood for us. One of my favorite hymns, what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus will complete the work that he started in you and present you blameless before the Father. Another wonderful gift that Paul says that the Corinthians and us have, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, this is one of those privileged gifts. The privilege that we have the ability to have a relationship, fellowship with Jesus. Probably one of the most neglected privileges that we have, but we have it at any moment, at any time. We can spend time with the creator of heaven and earth. He tells us, come boldly to my throne of grace where you can find mercy and help in your time of need. He wants us to come. He asks us to spend time with him. It's not him who's neglecting it. It's not him who's keeping us apart. It's always us. He's always saying, I'm ready. I'm available. Come hang out with me. Come spend time with me. The reason it doesn't happen is always on us our end. I want you to notice something very important about the first nine verses that we see here. Look at this slide and hopefully you see something that Paul is continually repeating over and over again. In every single one of these nine verses, Paul mentions Jesus and in some of them he mentions even more. So a total of 11 times in nine verses you have Jesus. Jesus. Paul greatly emphasizes Jesus in the introduction because Jesus is the ultimate solution to the problems that he is going to share about here in the book of 1 Corinthians. And all the different areas the Corinthians were struggling with, the ultimate problem that they had was they were losing sight of Jesus. They were suffering divisions. Why? Because they had lost sight of the unity that Jesus brings to their life. They were sexually immoral because they had forgotten that the members of their body were members of Christ. They were in lawsuits with one another because they failed to see that Jesus could help them to judge these things. They were struggling in their relationships because they were neglecting the most important relationship of all, the relationship with Jesus. They were abusing their liberties because they weren't demonstrating Jesus' love. They were abusing the gifts of the Spirit because they weren't seeking to glorify Jesus in them. They had problems with communion because they lost sight of the fact that it's all about Him, Jesus. That's why we remember Him. They had problems with the resurrection because they lost sight of the significance of what Jesus did through it. They had problems with giving because they lost sight of how much they'd been given by Jesus. One of the biggest issues the believers in Corinth had was losing sight of Jesus. And this is a big problem in the church today. We so often lose sight of him. We so often neglect time with him. We so often miss the greatest privilege that he's given to us. You know, today is New Year's. For many of you, you're thinking about New Year's resolutions for 2017, doing in 2017 what you did not do in 2016 usually. And the most common New Year's resolution among people has to do with physical well-being. I'm going to actually go to the gym this year. I'm going to eat healthy this year. I'm going to lose weight this year. I'm going to do whatever that kind of benefits me physically. And, you know, those things are fine. But I want to challenge you to make a New Year's resolution for your spiritual well-being. The challenge is to spend time praying, reading your Bible, growing in your relationship with Jesus, and here's the key, every day. I'm sure all of you pray. I'm sure all of you read your Bible, but the key is consistently every day. Read your Bible and pray every single day. You know, that's kind of the foundation of spiritual growth. Read your Bible and pray every single day. Make a commitment for 2017. Start today. Continue tomorrow. Hopefully for the next 365 days. Read your Bible and pray every single day. And I guarantee you, you will see amazing results of growth in the Lord becoming more like the one that you're spending time with.